Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Ambassador Grace Coe and Mistress of Spectrum, Trish Paoletta, where we are going to continue our discussion on international telecom and internet policy. So let's get into the global nature, which gets a little outside of the United States directly, which is these challenges we're having with Huawei and ZTE. We all probably spend a lot of time explaining to people the reason why this matters is because it's <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not just China, it's Africa, and now it's you know in the last couple of years really been Europe adopting a technology that I'll be the one to say is a little suspect. We're concerned about it at a level, and they're a huge dominant player globally, and so I know that that's part of our challenge is you know. What are the alternatives? And in the United States, we really don't have many companies that can, you know, compete with this, you know, this Goliath that's going on. And just to my friends at Samsung, I have to say that Samsung is in the 5G race. They get, they like to make sure that we remember them. Go Korea. So what, you know, what do we, what do we, does this play itself out on the international diplomacy stage? Is this a huge issue? I mean, is it always the gorilla in the room? elephant, whichever one we want to go with? <laughs> or is this more of a, a market situation where, you know, this? you guys don't talk about this from a diplomatic point of view, but we know it's always omnipresent when you're actually going to buy your equipment. We have spent quite a bit of diplomatic coin actually talking about Huawei and the concerns that the United States government has with Huawei equipment. It's a concerted effort at the State Department. There's a whole toolkit for discussing this, this issue. So is it, first of all, is it a market concern? Yes and no. We would like to have a market where there are competing players. And one of the things that I think we have complained fairly frequently of is the fact that Huawei, with its access to, I think, state subsidies or state-backed guarantees, doesn't compete on the same playing field. So, for example, if you go to, I mean, if it's able to go to Sierra Leone and offer to build not just the whole telecommunications network at a cut rate price with and Huawei equipment, you're not going to see, I think, another manufacturer able to do the same sort of thing to boot. They might be able to throw in a soccer stadium or something along those lines. And then also sort of pitch into the rest of the One Belt, One Road initiative that China has going on. So that, that, that's a concern. So there, there's some unfair market practices there to begin. Then you have the actual, so, so the practice of actually deployment is, is problematic. And then you have the substantive concerns about the security of the networks that are being deployed, which I think we've all tried to alert other countries to as well. Part of that message has been muddied by the notion that this is part of a trade war. I think the national security concerns that really we're just putting Huawei under the ringer so that we can get better advantages in any sort of trade negotiations. But when that question comes up, I'm, I'm quick to remind people that we have had concerns about Huawei equipment since 2012 when we first required SoftBank to take all of that equipment out of the Sprint network in order for it to purchase the Sprint network. So if these are not new concerns, they, they continue to exist. And I, I think that the government has information that validates those concerns. Grace, you just reminded me, and I can't remember what year it was, when all of a sudden the Dominican Republic was having some amazing build-out of baseball stadiums. And everybody, you say that to people and they're like, huh, you're like, do you really think those are just baseball stadiums? (laughs) Funny how close they are. And they're gigantic with amazing telecommunications equipment going into them. 
there is always that concern when you go to the Comtalka conference and you see the huge Huawei booth, right? Or, you know, or the Caribbean telecom conference or the South America. There's, you know, I did a lot of flying around last year and I snapped pictures of every single Huawei advertisement <laughs> I saw in the airports, which always, you know, I sent those back right to the State Department because I figured they would enjoy that. <laughs> but it, it's, it's, they are making a very concerted effort and it's what they should do if that's, you know, as, as who they are, right? I mean, as, as, as a large company that is seeking to continue to grow, it's not surprising that their, that their behavior seems rational, right? I mean, but they were one of the I mean, major contributors at the Consumer Electronics Show, you know, where there were mm-hmm. companies that were trying to decide, was there any value, you know, still in the space? Boy, Gary's going to kill me for saying that. But it's, you know, and then all of a sudden Huawei just came in and filled in, you know, the blank space that, you know, some of the other companies were deciding. And then because Huawei came in, I think, it's my personal opinion, you saw some of the others come back. And they were like, well, wait a minute, yeah. we're not going to cede space to these guys. So it's been very yeah. interesting to see that go on. Of yeah. course, we're all hoping we get to go to CES next year. Vegas will be back, <laughs> and then we'll be ready for that. Uh, yeah. Well, in addition to you know to the market concerns and the unfair practices, and those are of course very prevalent. And I mean, to your point, Shane, that well, yes, there's not a U.S. headquartered competitor, but there are trusted ally vendors like Nokia and Ericsson who've been in the U.S. market, have invested heavily, have a lot of R and D, a lot of employees. Yeah, we want to see them, of course, not driven out of the market from unfair practices. There's also some of the, you know, in my view, more sinister technology agendas that Huawei is bringing into various forums, particularly, the, well, certainly the ITUT. And, you know, they have one AI proposal, I suppose, on facial recognition and trying to, you know, get that blessed and sanctioned internationally. And, you know, in light of what's going on in Hong Kong and, you know, everywhere else, I mean, that, mm-hmm. that, that's scary. Obviously, non-democratic powers have very different views towards the uses of technology. And we do have to combat that, you know, combat their proposals at the ITU. So it's certainly it's, there's a, you know, there's a security aspect, as Grace said, there's the unfair trade practices, there's, you know, obviously surveillance, but there's also them trying, you know, going to the ITU to get their use, their non-democratic use of technology sanctioned. And that's, you know, that's Mm -hmm. frightening. And the U.S. government is, is, and the industry is rightfully organized to try to thwart that. Yeah, and, and very vigilant, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. My colleague, Claude Barfield, writes a lot more about the geopolitical aspects of this than I do. I tend to be more on the technical side. I don't, don't, don't disagree it's there, but he has many years of experience over me on that. So, which also is an interesting, I guess, because I do spend more time on the internet space than just as telecommunications, you know, multi- we're, you know, we're multi-stakeholder on the internet side, but that is kind of a, a next generation of what was the multilateral bodies. And and the mm-hmm. challenge I think you guys have, which is why we have an ambassador to work, is the one country, mm-hmm. one vote where you have to, you know, it's the end of the day, there's only, you only get one vote on these things. And does that disadvantage us when we see the Chinese wiring up Africa and, and Europe? I mean, it sounds like we're working really hard for good tech policy, but we're going to get beat out by just basic numbers every time. So I think the work and, and the ITU generally works by consensus. So it's, it's really, I mean, and this is one of the, I think, uh, the stabilizing effects of the way I think standards development organizations work. Generally, standards development organizations and a lot of these multilateral bodies work by consensus. It's not about votes. So, and believe it or not, all of the decisions that were made at the work, as contentious as they were, were actually done by consensus. So no single vote was taken 
I think the threat of a vote is always in the background. And I think people, you know, certainly I was doing some vote counting as we were trying to sort this out. And in particular at the ITU, they feel that a vote is actually a failure in a way. So it's um, like the don't make us vote on this. We got to do yeah, the don't exactly. make us correct. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> don't, let, don't make me call dad. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> The only time they really vote is is for leadership, which is 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 interesting. Yeah, let's talk about and, that for a second. Uh, so we got a there yeah. was an American woman, first time ever to become the head of the she's the development bureau, Doreen Bogdan Martin. And that was a yeah. huge, interesting push. I believe it was last year or the year before that. You know, you had the industry behind it. It was like you had this real rally to you know yeah. make sure that we had the you know we had the right person in it. God love her. She was a good, you know, good female. Spent a lot of time there, and is still there. I worry about her as she's over over in Europe, <laughs> luxuriating yeah. in all the things that Switzerland has. So that was a big deal. Why was it such a big deal? First, I mean, first woman. That's pretty amazing. first woman, and well, first first woman in the top five. So you've already you, you listed or had me list the three three sectors of the like, ITU. Yes, I forced and you, you to list have, all three of them. Yeah. We know that R is <laughs> the only one that matters, right? <laughs> Everybody get that? Yeah, math is R's hard for lawyers, Jane. That was hard. <laughs> well, R is hard. Okay, but let me make my point, madam. So you had the ITU Secretary General, the DEP, so, and then the three directors, right? So there's five top spots. And there had never, until Doreen had been elected, there had never been a woman in the top five spots. And there hadn't been an American person, the last being male, in one of those top five spots in a quarter century. So it was definitely a big deal that the U.S. very effectively campaigned for Doreen to get the development sector lead. And she had been uh, working over at you know, the ITU for some time and working you know, under Secretary General Zhao. So you know, she was well known. And by the way, her name is Doreen Bogdan Martin because oh, she's married you. to a Spaniard and lives in Switzerland. So she was, you know, a, a very Europeanized American. But yeah, you know, so she was palatable to the, you know, the ITU. They knew her, and but nonetheless, she is an American and and one of the U.S.'s now CTEL. And I want to come back to the CTEL right. point in a moment. Yes. One of the goals by the U.S. is to try to stop so much of the redundancy in the ITUT work with all these different focus groups and on the working parties. And, and if something's really primarily a development proposal or development initiative, have that go to the ITUD, where, you know, the, the development sector, where one, we know it's not because we have an American at its helm, it's not going to be rife with waste, fraud, and abuse. So that, that is one of the goals. But in part, you, you know, you asked Grace about how does the U.S. succeed when there's 192 other countries where, you know, it's one vote might not matter. We have been very effective, and it's very true with the WITSA coming up, in getting our region behind us, getting working with our regional body, which is part of the Organization of American States. There's a Commission on International Telecommunications, which we call CTEL. We like our acronyms, as you've already identified. <laughs> and we've, and because of the U.S. and other partners in CTEL, obviously, yeah, the CTEL is more prepared. Our region is more prepared for WITSA right now than the other regions. I mean, the APT, the Asia Pacific Telecommunity, where China is <laughs> its home base. I mean, they're kind of they're not yet unified on how to deal with the issues that are going to be addressed at WITSA. You know, the streamlining, the the refocus, trying to stick to our, their knitting. Yeah, and Europe is behind the very much behind the curve. But you know, because of the U.S. leadership and the way we've worked so cooperatively with our region, CETA, we are much more prepared at this point going into this, you know, what's at the end of the year, which, you know, we still have many months ahead. The other regions have time to catch up, but we're 
well positioned because the, the conference is not till late October, November, but we are so far, we are in the most prepared state. All those yeah, listeners yeah. wondering if I'm going to do a bingo card of acronyms that we will put on the AEI. Yes, I'm definitely doing a bingo <laughs> card. Oh my God, you absolutely should. <laughs> you absolutely should. That's, that's just great. Yeah, I think, as Trisha pointed out, Doreen is a bit of a unicorn. She has had extensive experience at the ITU, and she also had done a, a considerable amount of work in development, working on a broadband commission that the ITU had run. So it was a combination of her, I think, her fitness for the position, and I think the efforts made by companies and by the government of the U.S. to to really push her into there. And it would be great if we could continue to help her sort of work out and accomplish a, a good agenda for the development sector that really, I think, promotes the developing world and also helps to, I think, promote some of the interest in the way we want tech policy shaped by all, I think, by all different countries. So that's, that's sort of what's on tap there. And and we do a good bit of that kind of sort of diplomacy, I think, at CTEL. And certainly, we spend a lot of time talking to our counterparts, particularly in Canada, Mexico, and Brazil, the two large, I mean, the four largest members of CTEL. Usually when you can get the four of them to align, that's uh, fairly positive and, and bodes well for the region coalescing. But at the same time, it's hard to get all of us aligned. Brazil in particular tends to skew away towards a more sort of interventionist kind of regulatory style, when it, particularly when it comes to ITT issues. So I mean, you won't be surprised that, I, that Brazil, for example, is looking to figure out how to incorporate cybersecurity into the ITUT resolutions, certain cybersecurity standards, certain, I think, proposals on combating mobile telecommunication device theft, uh, certain proposals on standardizing Internet of Things in smart cities. So I, I think areas where I think the U.S. does not feel that we are ready to actually start putting in so global standards necessarily. Can you so. break that down a little bit? Because that's very confusing to the average bear that it sounds like we should be for cybersecurity, which we should be for cybersecurity. But when it gets into these international treaties, and for those who don't follow this on a regular basis, those Brazilians, you know, is adorable and fun as they are, they like to side on some of these things that don't always go in the same direction we're headed. So when they want to yeah. add, when we they want to add cybersecurity, and we're like, mm, I'm going to hold on that. That sounds like conflicting information to people. So what? Why do we have a problem with them putting cybersecurity in standards? Well, actually, you might be following this much more closely than I am. <laughs> but in all honesty, I, I think you know there there are efforts generally underway to try to standardize procedures, standardize I think technologies for combating I think cybersecurity for sourcing, for, for attributions that I think that, you know, at this point are still very much in flux and, and continue to evolve much more quickly than, say, an ITU body that meets every four years can actually keep up with. So I think we have some immediate concern there in terms of setting into place standards that can actually harm us or ossify things in a way that keeps us from being flexible and able to actually combat what the real threat is. And so I think that that's one of the concerns that we have, not to mention, we certainly don't want to be able to put more more authority into a multilateral body where I think in a way that sort of undermines, I think, individual nation sovereignty. So I think that's always kind of a threat as well. So you don't want to put the ITU into a position where, where things the IT needs to bulk up and become an arbiter of issues there. Are you aware of other specifics, Shane? Because I um, think I'm but- not... 
Sure. Well, let me just yeah. before you before you put our moderator on the spot, uh, <laughs> I'll just <laughs> I'll just jump in and, and add because I agree obviously with everything Grace said. Just to maybe make it very simple, yeah, the U.S. is is fine with the T sector looking into cybersecurity. You know the technical standards. It's just we don't want the T sector making policy. You know, cybersecurity policy that therefore, you know, members are supposed to be implementing in their domestic regimes. And, you know, that's what Grace was talking about in terms of sovereignty. We don't want to impinge on sovereignty. So, yeah, if T wants to look at technical cybersecurity standards, that's great. That's, you know, and when we part of our goal, at least on the D side, is developing the capacity in the developing world to, to combat some of these issues. And that's all good. But when they cross the line into policy and they're pushing for countries to implement their policy visions domestically, that gives us the willies. And the other thing is we don't want to have duplicative efforts. So you're going to do cybersecurity standards at the ITUT. That's fine. But let's not duplicate the work that's being done in some other standards bodies, like on the wireless side with 5G. 3GPP is doing 5G security and cybersecurity. That, so let them do it. We don't need to duplicate those efforts again in ITUT. This goes back to the two bites of the apple that sometimes, you know, Secretary General Zhao is happy to facilitate for Huawei and others. There probably will be another explained to Shane about cybersecurity and why it's always kind of, it sounds good to have the U.S. government be in, but it's more challenging than it sounds like. The two things I think you said, Grace, that make, that are the two words that capture it are authority, where that authority lies. Mm -hmm. And I love ossification because that is (laughs) constantly a problem in the tech space is we never want to put into a standard or a treaty something that we're going to blow right through with the next technology and then we're somebody can still say but we still should be on you know fill in the blank you know those wang computers from the 1980s why are we those were a good investment yeah (laughs) but you uh, going back earlier you mentioned something Canada, Mexico, and the United States in a, in a different context, but that also brings up the idea that we do have alternative areas to have discussions. So what's been going on, because I know we've been managing our thoughts around the, the world of NAFTA. And so has anything come forward that's just really on our own side of the world here on that, with Mexico and Canada, digital trade stuff? Well, yeah, the USMCA actually has a new digital trade chapter in it, which is a very welcome update since NAFTA. I mean, NAFTA was done before the internet was really a thing. It's very helpful that it confirms, I think, the three countries' willingness to recognize that data localization is not helpful to trade, right? So there are restrictions on data localization measures and requiring companies to store things in a specific jurisdiction. It promotes, I think, ways of sharing information when it comes to combating threats like cybersecurity. And it prohibits things like forcing companies to have to disclose proprietary computer or source code and algorithms, which I think, you know, in order to be able to conduct trade in a particular uh, jurisdiction. The two things on data localization and forced disclosure, that's very much, I think, a complaint that a lot of the tech companies have made about doing trade in China. Well, even That's in Brazil. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nobody thinks of really, yeah. nobody thinks of Brazil. When you're like, data localization just causes challenges that people don't expect. Yeah. China's a big one, yeah. but yeah, they do it in other places too. Yeah, but they, it creates a lot of friction in terms of just being able to seamlessly do, I think, run transactions across border. So I think that's a very welcome change. And it's a way of sort of, it's a method of harmonizing, I think, or making our, our digital tech policies interoperable. 
that that's all good information. Are there any acronyms we haven't discussed? I feel like we got them all. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> uh, we, we, we got more, Shane, if you want. I mean. <laughs> okay, no so problem. let's just wrap this up on a note that everybody, you have to mention COVID at some point because we're all living through it right now. Just give me sort of some top of mind things like with all of this going on. And you know, normally, as you've mentioned, Grace, several times, and I know Trish you, you, and I myself are usually on an airplane going somewhere to talk to real humans, but thank God technology is there with every version of Zoom and WebEx and BlueJean, which I've used once, and Google's in the act, and now Facebook's got places. So there, there seems like, okay, we can still talk to each other, but it's so important to still have that ability to do the hallway conversation, and COVID's gotten in, in the middle of that. So what, what else do you think does COVID change? Help me elaborate on that, because that's kind of a thought that's been going around in my head. So, so I'm, I'm happy to start. One of the things is it's just been a really sort of, it's been a setback in a way for globalization, hasn't it? I mean, the, the whole notion that we should be people of good things should be flowing freely between borders was really sort of been set on its heels by the fact that, yeah, you do that and you can get sick and die. That's a problem. I think that we've had an anti-globalization bent in this particular administration, and I think mm-hmm. in other administrations around the world. I'm thinking about Bolsonaro. It's sort of, in a way, confirming to some degree that that globalization is not helpful in a way. I also think COVID has also forced us to become, I think, much more dependent on on technology in order to be able to continue to conduct that global commerce trade dialogue. And you sort of see the tension between the two, the anti-globalist trade and and the, the need to continue to figure out how to do this virtually, sort of butting up against each other. That's one of the fascinating things I've noticed about the pandemic. And I just would add that the, you know, the fact that it has to be virtual, yes, we're still having some meetings, but there's just so much less effective because there is so much in the hallway discussion, right? And as Grace had said earlier, the WARC agenda for the next WARC, which is in 2023, has adopted the the prior one. So we're already, you know, working on it through our region and preparing for WARC 23. And instead of a one-week meeting, which would have been earlier this month, we had a basically a half day WebEx or what was the Kudo was that platform, you know, and in, instead of doing you know, much more work and on a broader array of different agenda items, we really only could discuss, you know, who was going to be the chairs of the different working parties. And it was just, you know, instead of actually being face to face and talking to the Dominican Republic and, oh, there's my buddy from Mexico and I got to raise this with him. I mean, all the hallway discussions, you just couldn't do. And we, we've yeah. made such little progress. So, my law firm is a technology telecom law firm. All these platforms you've mentioned, or most of them are, are clients, so they're doing a great job. I think in any fora with humans, right? But particularly the international forums, you need the face-to-face communications and yeah, the sidebar conversations. So yes, we're continuing to have the meetings, but and not just in our region, but you know, in Europe and I assume everywhere, everybody's behind the curve now because you don't have the ability to talk to, you know, grab that opportunistic chat with the guy you need to talk to while he's sidling up to the coffee machine, right? So COVID has set us back on the international stage in terms of the progress we can make. But, you know, nonetheless, these things are scheduled. We're going forward. For the foreseeable future, all the ITU meetings are virtual. And, you know, we'll see how we go. But that might mean, you know, to be more looking at the implementation or implications going forward, you know, it might make a more harried and crazy 
set of years and the out years, right? 23, 22 might be really harried while we're trying to catch up for lost time. And, you know, the same is certainly true for the WITSA if it goes forward in person in October, November, and, you know, in, in India. It just might be a little more chaotic as people are not quite as prepared as they normally would be. I also, in some previous conversations with you ladies, you know, the whole idea that telecom infrastructure may become more important, you know, higher up in the mm-hmm. food chain for some conversations. But then we have that balance against the challenge of seeing some countries want to centralize more of this because right, they do, right. or, or in some yes. cases, nationalizing it, which, you know, we've been very fortunate that our broadband is super strong, going great. We didn't have any degradation of, of service to date, um, even though there are days, I kind of think <laughs> I wouldn't mind a moment off, <laughs> but not because the broad, you know, not because broadband is going down, just because I just want to take a walk. But So that, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. And I, of course, the irony is not lost probably on anyone that to do a really good, you know, set of diplomacy around telecom, you need to actually be in person and not always on the technology, <laughs> which makes it strong. Yeah. Well, ladies, I want to thank you for so much time. This has been a fantastic conversation. Please let us stay in touch with you and and hopefully have you on and explain to Shane in the near future so you can keep us posted on all these important topics as well as the acronyms. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to thank you and my listeners for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. 